0: And one time when my, my son was s- 16, a lot of his friends were getting cars. One friend got a BMW. <laughs> and I, it's, coincidentally, had just bought myself a car. And I looked at you know the BMW and looked at different cars, and I ended up getting the Acura, which was $15,000 less. Right. And so when I heard that this kid <laughs> got the BMW and I didn't, I was fuming. And I said to my son, you know, we're not a family like that. Meaning and- what? No, we just don't throw out money, you know. We we think about what we spend on. We're more about value.
1: When you see Carrie Schwab Pomerantz's name, you might assume the daughter of Charles Schwab grew up quite privileged. After all, the Schwab name has become synonymous with wealth management. Didn't she end up working in the industry kind of by default? Actually, no. Carrie's parents divorced when she was a child and her father's firm didn't become a financial force until she was well into her 20s. She was already there working with clients when Bank of America bought the company in 1983, and she continued after Charles Schwab split off again four years later. Today, Schwab Pomerantz is chairman of the Charles Schwab Foundation and a senior vice president at the $56 billion company. She's a certified financial planner and focuses on reaching out to groups like women, minorities, and young people who tend to have less experience managing their personal finances. I'm John Fort from CNBC. I talked to Carrie for the Fort Knox podcast to get a sense of her personal journey, successes and mistakes, and also to dig out a lot of practical money tips for professionals who are trying to save for the future while planning big purchases and even raising a family. It's January, after all. There's still time to make good on all those money resolutions. We begin with Carrie's first job as a teen at her dad's small business.
0: Well, remember, I was only 16, and right. it was at two rooms, and most of Schwab at that time was on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I like to tell people I was the secretary's secretary. <laughs> I was just in an event uh, when we were launching the book, The Charles Schwab Guide to Finances After 50, and I dedicated it to my dad. And at a big launch party, I had him come up, and I explained to everybody, you know, my first job, I was a secretary secretary and he grabs a microphone and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me set the stage straight. Carrie was not a secretary. She was a file clerk. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody busts it up. So I said, okay, I gotta change my resume now. But as I got older and we started opening up branches, summer jobs were in, in a branch, and I was dealing with Clients directly, but more obviously in an administration level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was giving clients quotes over the phone. You know, stock quotes. Um, that, those are the days when you couldn't go online. You had to call Schwab, and we just, you know, IBM, Schlumberger, you know, whatever. Here's here here's the you know bid ask, and then um, and then confirmations. I would call clients and say, you know, Mr. Smith, you just you know sold your uh, IBM at you know whatever, and uh, and then it wasn't until a, a year I took a year off after college and worked for a shipping company that's where I thought I wanted to go Why? And so I, I just was enamored with this whole idea of ships I don't know what it was about and sh- you know going off to the far off you know seas and and this sort of inner you know is before the world was flat right, right. and um, just I don't know something about international and um, that didn't last very long it's not it wasn't a growing industry and I ended up going to Schwab, back to Schwab. I was convinced by one of my dad's senior executives, because I was thinking about going back into financial services, and I was even thinking about going to a different company. And she said, you know, she said, that's ridiculous. You've got to come to Schwab. <laughs> We're starting a new recent, or new program for recent college graduates. It was the first of its kind. And just, At this
1: point, had Schwab become sort of a thing? No, no, no. Still
0: not yet? Still not yet. It was right before that. It was just the beginning of that. It was right, it was um, 1983 and I'm trying to remember exactly the time frame, but it was soon after that, oh yeah, it was soon after that uh, training, during the training program, we announced that Bank of America was gonna buy us. And so Bank of America was gonna fuel a lot of cash so we could build branches all over the country. And I remember um, it was a employee benefit that we could all buy Bank of America shares for no commission. So guess what, I'm you know 23 years old, I hadn't quite. I hadn't really invested yet, except you know, I, and um, this was before the IRA story, mm-hmm. and um, or just before. So I bought two shares of Bank of America. I remember this at twenty-two dollars a piece because I was you know a little scared. And um, I always joke that I was the smallest shareholder of Bank of America, and my dad was the biggest or the <laughs> largest. So um, and I still have those two shares, and I watch them grow just out of interest to see how you know the compounding occurs. And I think it's about in the four hundred those forty-four dollars worth of about well over $400.
1: If you had to do over, how many shares would you have gotten?
0: Well, I still, I think, you know, financials have had their ups and downs and mm-hmm. certainly Bank of America has. I mean, it's not bad to think, bad. yeah, $22 now or $44 to $400 something dollars. Um, there are times when I wish I bought more of of individual stocks, you know, um, but I think I guess there's
1: another way of asking, uh, do... Do young people not invest enough? Do they not put enough skin in the game? Or is it just part and parcel of the fact that you're young, you don't have a lot of disposable income, you shouldn't put that much in the game? Well, let me, let,
0: me give you, let me give you just some thoughts about that. You should always have some portion of your savings and equities. For a young person, you don't want to be, in, or anybody, you don't want to be invested in anything that you're going to, any money that you're going to need within five years. Mm. Okay, so this is money you can put away for five years or more.
1: And that's not even counting the retirement savings. You're just saying, if you're investing in equities,
0: or no, no, or just you're saving, saving yeah. and investing. All if you take a look at your total picture, uh-huh. um, and you ha- uh, so in your in your retirement, for, you know, a young person, gosh, you could be almost one hundred percent in uh, equities, mm-hmm. you know, ETFs or whatever. And then maybe when you start to turn fifty, even if you're fifty, you may still want a higher level of equities in your retirement because that's long term. Uh, but, but also with your with your assets outside of your retirement account. But again, this is money you will not need for at least five years. Mm. Should be in a diversified portfolio. And then as you get older, you're going to want to start to incorporate some, you know, fixed income. You, know, you always want to have a small stash of cash uh, for, you know, for those times when you need immediate money. So um, equities. I even tell people who are in retirement, you should have at least twenty percent. Of your, your, of your portfolio in equities because that's you're going to get the growth to outpace inflation
1: so in stocks, no matter how old you are even if you're in your 70s
0: correct think about or somebody who retires at 65 I mean you could last you could last you could live another <laughs> another thirty years that's a generation and a half and a long time for your money to grow in a lot of different cycles in the markets you know I, I, I people don't realize there's a little side thing Mm-hmm. About investing. Back in 2007, the S&P 500 was at a high of 1570, right? High of 1570. It was like an all-time high. So right then we have 2008. It drops 50%. A lot of people were sold. Sold. They locked in their losses. Well, guess what? If you look at the S&P 500 today... It's up forty five percent from the high of
1: two thousand and seven. Yeah, not even from the low of two thousand seven. Not even from the, the low high of two thousand seven. So
0: it's just again, investing is about the long sticking with your plan and investing for the long term. And
1: that's so hard. So tell me, what was your plan? Because I imagine there are people. I was guilty of this before, you know, I heard your name. And I was like, well, let me let me find out a little bit about Karen yeah. schwab Palmer." And so I listened to a podcast that you had done before, did some reading. It's like, okay, well, this isn't like it was always the Schwab empire for no, her not at entire all. life. So not at all. But when people hear your name, they probably figure out, oh, well, she's never had to think yeah. about, worry about money.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I always, like I said, i always a saver. I don't rely on... Other people or you know, windfalls and so forth. So always put money away. You know, as I mentioned, you know, I started with my savings account. I, you know, I had an an IRA in my early 20s, diligently saving in it every year. I, you know, to me, saving and having money set aside is about, it's liberating. It's about making choice, having to be able to do what you want in in your life. And and, um, so... You know, I, I, that, that's important to me, to what not to most, be independent.
1: What was the most important big purchase you made in your 20s?
0: <sighs> so um, my, my house. I, I bought a townhouse with my husband when we first got married. Hmm. And, of course, we were very, again, we, we created a budget. We bought a house. Uh, we used the rule of thumb that you should only buy or have a loan more than... Um, is it two and a half, and I'm forgetting the, the rule of thumb, two and a half times your salary. And So in other words, um, no more than, say, 20% or 25% of our income. Hmm. And and for a number of years when we were married, we lived off one income and saved the other. So again, we, we live beneath our means. We look for every way to save so that if and when we wanted to take that vacation or Or upgrade you know we 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 had some choices in our life or or change a job Um, we had some padding and and it takes off the stress of you know of life really
1: worst decision you made
0: well there's a few times where we bought houses that we thought oh no what did we do Mm -hmm. you know that we, we felt
1: house poor I tell you what, my worst decision in my, yeah. my my best decision was probably the first condo that yeah, I bought, yeah. one bedroom condo yeah. in San Jose in what was it, two thousand two, early two thousand two. Yeah, I nice.
0: Think. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know, got in there on a first time home buyer program, and it seemed really expensive, but who knows? Maybe Silicon Valley will keep going. Right. Worst decision. After my wife and I got married. We kind of felt like, oh, maybe we should get a two bedroom. We didn't yeah. need a two bedroom. Yeah. Right? We slept in one bed. Yeah. But we got a two bedroom condo in uh, two thousand six. And did you feel house poor for a while? Well no, but it was two thousand six. Yeah. So we, we paid over- the high. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you we, paid on the we high. We bought it at yeah. the high of yeah. the market and that was that was painful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But were you able to ride it?
1: Well, sort of yes and sort of yeah. no. I mean, basically we uh, lost all the equity in, in, that we might have had in the yes. place and the had one you, before that we used to yeah, buy it and yeah. had to kind of scrape up a down payment from scratch to buy another place. Right. Ended up losing not only the equity, but actually Ooh. losing money on that transaction Ooh. to get out of it.
0: That's painful. And so that's, so that's a, a, something I always tell people. Don't look at real estate it's hard. I mean, especially in California, we want to do this, but don't look at it as an investment. Look at it as a place you want to live, and you know. And, and you asked about another mistake. We also in, uh, renovated a house and added some rooms, but then we wanted to sell, and so we didn't. Certainly, didn't get our money back. And that you know, you, we thought, oh, certainly we'll get our money back, but we didn't. Mm. So I think you know, the mindset has to be: this is a home. It's not something that I'm expecting to, you know, fuel my retirement or fuel whatever next big purchase.
1: If you're living in it, now if, if, you, it. if you somehow end up moving into another place and can rent the first house out, then it becomes an investment, right?
0: Yes, I mean yes, as long as you have that. But the but the point is, is you can't. Real estate is illiquid. You know, it's not a fast turnaround, mm. and it has um, cycles, as we've seen. Um, and um, we we have been taught to think that real estate goes up, nothing but up. But it does go, you know, we saw a lot of people underwater. So, so that's my point. I, you know, look, look at other investments like equities and bonds and so forth. And just, you know, if, if, if your house goes up, the more, the better, right? But don't totally count on it. Hmm. And, tr- and if you can, try not to put, you know, overspend over or over, um, you know, don't become house poor like I did at one point in my life.
1: What's the biggest challenge for women? Um, when it comes to managing finances, whether it's uh, a challenge that the culture puts forward, some idea about yeah. women and money, or just something biological about the fact that women live longer? It's
0: kind of all, all of the above. Um, women, we have unique circumstances. We do live longer. We tend to go in and out of the workforce. And we get paid less. You know it used to be seventy cents on the dollar now it's about eighty cents so it's going up slowly but <laughs> so the bottom line is we have more years to save for and with less money so that means we have to be more prepared and we have to start early but I you know I mentioned to you that I've spent a lot of my work on helping women Unfortunately studies show that more women than men lack confidence in their investing abilities and they I don't want to say disengage, but they're less likely to be involved in the family finances, hmm. and 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 unfortunately, that's you know I think involvement leads to financial security. So in a you know for anybody, you want to understand the basics of money management. To me, that means uh, you know budgeting and living within your means, saving and investing, knowing how to save and invest for your future, and knowing when something is too good to be true. And, and, and the basic, you know, basic in a marriage or, or at partnership, you know, don't totally abdicate. You can delegate, but not abdicate. So that means know where your assets are, like what, fi- where are the, what financial institutions is your money? What are you invested in? This is as a couple, as a, and always be involved with the big decisions. Hmm. And that to me is, is basic, and it's also self-respect. And, and that goes for men too, by the way. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who manage the money, um, including in my my you know relationship as well.
1: You manage the money.
0: I manage the money, and um, so it's for men and women. But just unfortunately, we do have unique circumstances, and from social and cultural uh, norms, we've been less involved. So we, you know we've got to play a little bit of catch up. And, and let me just say that the four hundred and one k actually has forced more women today, you know, being in the workforce to be investors. So that's a good thing.
1: That is a good thing. Joint accounts or separate accounts. Or both?
0: I like the his, hers, and ours.
1: Okay, explain.
0: Well, um, I think when you work together you're more likely to achieve your goals and it's something that can bring you together, right? So having your hours, you know, for your future, for your children. Um, But I also really believe that we're individuals and we need a level of independence. And especially for women, right? Historically, we haven't been the money makers. So, I, 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 whether you're you're the primary uh, breadwinner or not, you both have to have a pot of money. And and again, that's just about um, having a level of uh, independence, but also a level of confidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it makes a stronger marriage.
1: I think growing up, my parents used to have. Separate accounts and then a joint account yeah. that they pretty much contributed equal amounts yeah. to. Uh, in our marriage, we decided, and I sort of proposed, to, to flip it and say, why don't we each get an allowance that's pretty much yeah. equal? Yeah. But put stuff, put everything, everything yeah, into, the because for me, it, it communicated, you don't get more control because you make more money.
0: Totally agree and you know like in a situation where one partner makes so much more than the other is sort of, you know you don't want to be driving a Maserati and your you know spouse driving a Prius. Right. You know you want to live equally so I, I think I like the way you're doing it.
1: And the other piece is I didn't want to be looking at statements and thinking, do you really need to go to Starbucks that many times a week? <laughs> or right? buy that dress. Exactly. Like I I just did I didn't want to have to think it just. Have your money to do mm-hmm. that discretionary stuff, and then I don't need to have an opinion yes. about it. And to some degree, vice versa. I'm not trying to be secretive, yeah. but just I, I don't feel like I need to be all up in your business yes, to that degree.
0: Yes, and you don't need his or her approval for every little thing. Again, that gets back to independence and self-confidence and so forth. So, so I'm I'm all there with you. I think you've got. I think that's the way I would do it. But of course, it's very. um Everybody does it differently. I heard about this one couple. They split everything. Uh, They were even in a cab, and they were getting out of the cab. They both put in money. (laughs) That, to me, is a different extreme. But hey, if it works for them.
1: If it works for you, I guess. Okay, I'm going to ask a bunch of practical stuff, because it's it's your bailiwick. So what do you do if you come from just different families, maybe of different means, and maybe his parents have a lot of money and want to give the kids really expensive gifts, and your parents don't have a lot of money and don't give that same level of gift, or you know, one family wants to take trips together and maybe you know the the grandparents will pay for it, but the other side can't can't do that. How do you balance those kind of extended family financial oh, issues? Oh, that's
0: interesting. I've never really been asked by that. Um, put you on the You spot know, I think, that. I know. So so a couple of things. One is, and you'd actually asked this before, and I didn't really, I don't think I really touched on it. You want to teach your kids um, about self-worth, not net worth. So, you know, there's there's that, if you can talk about that more, you know, in, as you're raising your children, uh, you know, that goes back to having a job, earning their own money, saving money. Um, you know, Self-worth, not
1: net worth, meaning... Yeah. It's not about how much money you have, yeah, um, exactly, or your friends have, yeah, or mm-hmm. maybe don't tell them what your salary is, sort of thing. Or? Well,
0: yeah, I mean that. In other words, it's not all about money. Who makes who you who you are, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know, I, I mentioned you know you asked me I raised my kids in the Bay Area, and uh, there's a lot of wealth there. Oh, you can ask me about the difference. I forgot to mention you asked me the difference of my kids versus my growing up. When I was growing up, like I said, my parents they divorced. My dad was a struggling businessman. Life was simpler in those days, right? You didn't have the Nike tennis shoes and, you know, all the, you know, all the, the toys. And, um, and, and today our kids have so much more and it's kind of more, we have a culture of keeping up with the Jones. Mm-hmm. So kind of gets back to, so, so I, my, the difference with my parents versus what I did with my My children versus my parents is I had to really work hard to make sure that they that I limited how much money they had, made sure that they you know they earned their own you know stripes, and um, and that we were not a family about flaunting money, Mm. and and we made and we made good choices. You know we didn't have to buy the BMW. You know what I think I did. I really did. My two boys are totally frugal. They, they've been saving diligently in their, in their IRAs and 401Ks. Uh, they still live in little apart, you know, one-bedroom place with not a lot of things. And, um, and one time when my, my son was 16, a lot of his friends were getting cars. One friend got a BMW. <laughs> and I, it's, coincidentally, had just bought myself a car and I looked at, you know, the BMW and looked at different cars, and I ended up getting the Acura, which was $15,000 less. Right. And so when I heard that this kid <laughs> got the BMW and I didn't, I was fuming. And I said to my son, you know, we're not a family like that. Meaning and, what? No, we just don't throw out money. You know, we, we think about what we spend on. We're more about value a right. value, you know, getting a really good product for a fair price. And, and I was, I don't know, I was fuming. It was like it took the wind out of me because I just, i was so happy about my car. <laughs> and um, a few minutes later, I brought it up again, and he said, Mom, I know I would be embarrassed to drive a BMW at my age. And so I thought, yes, yes, you know, my kids really think about this, that, you know. So they don't want to be something that they're not or, or be pretentious in any way. Going back to the grandparents, um, you know, that's a hard one. My my mother-in-law, oh, my God, she, she gave so many presents to the kids, ton, it was almost obscene how many presents. They weren't expensive. A lot of toys. Where my mom gave the one toy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to each kid, you know, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes you might have to ask your parents maybe to, to, you know, skim it down a little bit or some more conversations, you know, with your kids about understanding the difference. But, but also making sure with both grandparents, it's really about love and connection. So finding, if, if the other grandparents can't afford it, look for other ways to, cr- to create that deepened relationship.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, the family stuff I found just, it gets complicated because money, it's not about the bills, it's about what you value, Yeah. right? And, right. and making that translation from what's financial into expressing your values, I think is really hard. For a lot of
0: us, well, and and that's I think that's the key to raising money wise kids. It's first is share your share your values, your money values, with um, your children. Again, you know what does money represent in your family, and then teaching them the nuts and bolts. You hear you hear about these families, the very ultra wealthy families. They call it shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. You know, where the first generation makes the money. You know, you know struggles to make the money. The um, second generation spends all the money and the third generation loses it. And so psychologists will say, again, you know, pass on your values um, and uh, teach the nuts and bolts and your money will last f- further, you know, more generations. And I think you'll have a, more, a deeper life in a sense, because some of these young people, when they just throw money at them, it, it takes away their self-worth. That's really what happens. And, and and they're they're not as confident as individuals that they can do it on their own.
1: Has your career had a defining moment?
0: Yeah, uh, I would say when I was appointed by President Obama to the President's Advisory Council on Financial Capability, I had done work with under President Bush as well. It's you know it's, it, it, to me the the need for financial literacy in this country is apolitical. But not only was I asked to be on the, on the council, but I was asked to chair the partnership committee. And the reason I was invited to do that was because of my work in creating for-profit and partnerships, uh, in partnerships, national partnerships, in particular one with Charles Schwab and with the Boys and Girls Club of America, mm-hmm. you know, where we together created this after-school program for, for teenagers 13 to 18 and it continues to be the fastest growing program. We've reached 800, about 800,000 teens and we know from our work that we're making a difference in their lives. We're not only changing, their, no- you know, improving their knowledge, but we're changing their behaviors in terms of realizing, hey, I can actually save for the future. And oh, I have a little bit of money from my summer savings. I can actually go to college. So we're changing the trajectory of children's lives, so it was it was such an honor to be asked to run the partnership committee and look for other ways to bring uh, for, um, for-profit, nonprofit, and the public sector together to create more financial literacy in this country.
1: What came after that that causes you to look back on it as a defining moment?
0: Well, I guess, you know, it allowed me, you know, I had always worked for Schwab, and um, I loved I love, um, bringing people together to create bigger things. And um, we looked for ways to get cities to think about their own presence councils or mayor's councils and states. We created a workbook for them to, to do work at the local level, I also worked on workplace financial education, feeling that that's the next distribution channel hmm. to create more financial literacy. I'm now seeing, you know, so we, we got input from the you know, AFL CIO, Chamber of Commerce, lots of employers about what is a best in class financial literacy at work um, program. Now we're seeing at Schwab, you know, we provide. Uh, retirement plans to corporations we're seeing more and more corporations asking us for financial education programs for their employees because they're realizing that and we knew this through the President's Council that those people who lack or um, who don't have financial literacy and they're not saving they're less productive employees Hmm. so it's employers want to differentiate themselves as an employer by providing the, these services, um, but also it's in their best interest actually to save money, to, you know, retain and to keep their employees as focused on the work as possible. So those were sort of outcomes. I, you know, I look for my different ways to, to um, continue that, you know, within Schwab and outside. And I have my hands on all sorts of things, including a college program for college students. Mm. And I'm always looking for ways for, to leverage, you know, my work and Get out there and get hurt you know hit more people
1: so give us a book that you've written that you recommend that people start with to improve their financial literacy and maybe a book or two that you didn't write that that you think will be valuable for people. um
0: well okay so a couple things one is so i did write a book with my dad wait you know 12 years ago and i definitely want to get that rewritten it's it was called it pays to talk how to have the essential conversations with your family about money and investing and it, and it was really a it was a financial a personal finance book mm-hmm. that allowed people to go in different different places in their lives whether they were single just getting married just having kids thinking about later in life so it's through life stages um, l- later I, I uh, my team and I created SchwabMoneyWise.com that is a great resource today it's for anybody I call it for any for novices but to be honest with you. I learned something from it. You know, it's got a section on, on you know, savings and budgeting, uh, taxes, philanthropy, investing, credit card debt. You know, with tools and calculators. So it's a great resource for anybody, um, no matter what stage of you know a, an investor you may be. Uh, of course. A couple years ago, we came out with the Charles Schwab Guide to Finances After 50. (laughs) You definitely do not need to be 50 to use it. Um, it, It's 50 questions, and there's plenty on there on how to kind of get to thinking of retirement or or just uh, how to make choices on your money as you're trying to also save for retirement. Um, Okay, other books. Uh, Beth Kobliner. She served with a K. She served on the President's Advisory Council with me. She's a you know she's really trying to get young people to save and invest and get parents more involved. Mm. So she's had a several books, and then there's Gail Marks Jarvis, who also wrote a retirement book. So those are some um, other uh, folks that you you know you should consider looking at.
1: Great, yeah, I think uh, people will find that really useful. Do you have a rule of thumb? when it comes to credit, whether it's a number of credit cards or yeah. <laughs> pay I'm them a, off every month yeah. or... L-
0: let me just tell you a couple things. Um, one is, you know, I, you know, I'm a financial planner, I'm a certified financial planner, and so uh, the, the rule of thumb around debt is no more than uh, 28% on a, on a home mortgage of your uh, pre-tax income. Now, somebody who lives in San Francisco or right. New York will say that's not going to fly. <laughs> so, of course, get your you know calculator out. Make sure you you know you you figure out you know where you you know if you can handle this or not.
1: If you're going to break the rule, know the rule.
0: Exactly, know the rule. Make yeah, and make sure you're saving. Do not do it at the expense of saving. In fact, buying a home is should be fourth on your priority. Remember, I talked about cash cushion. Say uh, saving for your in your four hundred and one k credit card debt, then your retirement. After that, then you can think about a home. Then you can think about your children's uh, college education. So retirement cash cushion d- credit cards are first. So going back to your your uh, or or debt to the rule of thumb twenty eight percent on on a home mortgage, thirty six percent total on debt debt, and then that's again that's a rule of thumb, and that's to make you. not over leveraged right and stressed or you have your finances stress so those are the good um, good ones you know in terms of credit card debt that's bad debt right you know you're getting no tax write off at all uh, interest accumulates super quick lots of penalties so try to pay that off on a monthly basis keep in mind that home mortgages and student loans that's what we call good debt because it's an investment in the future Right, you know, with homes, we talked about it, the money uh, or the equity going up may or may not happen, but you do get the, you know, the tax write-off on the on the um, mortgage loan, on the interest, and then with student loan, obviously you're investing in your future, in your education for your future career opportunities.
1: Here's the thing about student loans that yeah. I think increasingly people are wondering about: is there a limit to which it's good debt? I mean, because the amount of debt that people have to take on in some cases yeah. now for a four-year degree is just getting staggering. And is it only good debt if you finish or if you go to a school uh, for a degree yeah. that has a prospect of, of paying off yeah. at a certain level?
0: I, you know, I, I struggle this with this in my own mind and I hurt for young people who have to make these kind of choices. It depends on your financial situation, right? And you know, whether your parents can help, what kind of access you have. Let's just say you're totally doing it on your own. Um, I, I would consider community college for a year or two, mm-hmm. because once you graduate from that four-year college, no one's going to know you went to community college. You know, If you went from community college to Harvard, they're going to see Harvard.
1: Right, and the idea is you go for a year or two and then transfer into mm-hmm. the other school.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of universities the the private bigger ones today have uh, will give you a full ride if your parents income are under like one hundred and twenty five one hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars again you know w- w- the hard part is those families who make. Over 150,000, say between 500. Sounds like a lot of money, but if you're living in New York or San Francisco and you have multiple kids, it doesn't. The numbers don't work out. In college, it's $200,000 a year. So, um, but but the point is, is there there are a lot of universities that will pick, give you a full ride depending on your family income, um, and then they will also give you grants and scholarships. You know merit um, grants and so forth. Consider going to a neck a second tier university. Because they they want you, and they're more likely to pay more for you to come there. So that's another way to get around it.
1: Do people put too much emphasis on school brand? Uh, on an earlier episode of this podcast, I talked to the CEO of Intel, who went to San Jose State University. Yeah, yep. Grew up in San Jose, still lives in Silicon Valley, hometown yeah. guy. And he says, it doesn't matter where you go to school. He says he tells his daughter this. It matters.
0: What you do.
1: What you do, the professors you meet, what you learn, the hands-on experience that you get in that environment. Just as long as you can learn what you need to learn and you have brilliant people around you and access to them, that's more important. Have we gotten too attached, though, to this, this Ivy League idea? There are people who are going out there putting the kids in courses, hiring consultants, yes. just to get into a certain type of school. Is it yes. worth it?
0: We have, but I think it's at a... It, Exactly, consultants, you know, we want the top, you know, the Ivy League, um, because we think that's going to open all the doors for our children. I mean, certainly, you know, there's no doubt, but like the CEO of Intel, the majority of CEOs today went to a state school. I know I grew up mostly going to public schools myself. I, I, like the CEO, I believe it's what you do with yourself, it's not the certificate. Um, so, you know, I, I like to see a young person who has drive and wants to learn and soak it up. I, I don't want somebody who just sits back on their laurels. So, um, so I think I think young people should, should con, con, you know, consider that.
1: One piece of advice that you would give to um, people in underrepresented communities, yeah. let's say uh, blacks and Latinos, yeah, mostly at, at this point is what we're talking about in that in that category, who are looking to create a culture within their family, uh, create practices for themselves that'll improve their financial literacy and situation over time? What are, what are one or two things that you would say, hey, to start, do this?
0: Well, I think, you know, always, you know, get some primer, uh, you know, Schwab Money Wise. Uh, some books, you know, of reputable reputable books around saving and investing. I think a lot of people are fearful of, of equities, and, and I get it, but those are the people. Remember, we talked stocks about the are stocks are kind of scary. They are scary. I think if people learn a the power of compound growth, you know, and and um, it look at the his historical charts of, sh- of equities, they have always outperformed other investments. Now it's interesting you bring um, African Americans. We used to conduct a survey at Schwab. With, we co-sponsored it with Ariel Mutual Funds, mm. Ariel Capital, and we looked at the difference of whites versus blacks and, and how they put their their money um, in savings. And these people were of same income. Whites were more likely to invest in a diversified portfolio of equities and stocks, cash. African Americans were more likely to put their money in real estate. Mm. And that's one asset category. And and real estate experts who manage money will say that real estate uh, prices mirror small cap stocks, which small cap is considered more risky and right. more volatile. So so it's really important, again, going back to not being over-leveraged in a home. I know and that's not what you're talking about, but put all your eggs in a home, being you know well-diversified having, you know, having a nice home, but also putting any extra money in equities. And I get it. You, you know, but there are ways around, there are ways that you can do it. Even 20%, you know, I talked about earlier, put it in a, in an ETF, a standard and fours, you know, ETF, which represents 500 uh, companies in the United States, 70% of the stock market. You know when the market goes up, your portfolio will go up. When it goes down, it goes down. And when I say diversified, I also mean having some cash and some bonds as you get older. And, um, yes, it will go up and down, but don't look at it every day. It will drive you crazy. But you can see, historically, it outperforms. And, um, you know, it, it, investing is in stocks are in, uh, structurally engineered to grow. Hmm. There are companies that
1: their existence is purely really to grow. I'll tell you, as, as an African American, I feel that. Because you know, growing up, uh, we didn't have a lot of money, and my parents didn't buy stocks. Like the, yeah. the stock market was really kind of this mystical thing that people yeah. with money thought about and, and worried right. about. When I got to college, I realized you know, I had friends whose parents almost had a ritual around you know, buying them their first stocks at a certain yeah. age, and they yeah. would see how they performed over time. Yeah. And uh, you know, as a business reporter, uh, I'm not allowed to own individual stocks. There was a period where I wasn't reporting on business, and I decided I'm going to buy a couple of stocks yeah. just so that I can know what it feels like, so I can understand yeah. the, the process, especially in this online yeah. era of you know, picking some stocks, tracking them. So for a couple years, uh, I did that. Now, as a business uh, reporter again, I can't own individual stocks except for Comcast, our parent company. And, yeah, S&P 500 all the way. Yes. It, and it, me, performs so, so it performs consistently, so consistently. Well, it right? so well. At least over the past few yes. years. Yes.
0: Yeah. But and limited
1: upside, limited downside.
0: Exactly. And it's for a long time. You have many years before you're going to need access to that money. Um, you know, buying individual, st- so here's, here's I believe in, sort of the core and explore approach. It's okay to buy individual stocks, but n- just know that when you buy a couple individual stocks, you really are, that's when you're gambling. It's when you go into the S&P 500 or some type of index that has so many stocks underneath it, that's not really gambling, that's investing. So that's one thing to think about. So if you have your core money in a, you know, investing, or I mean in a mutual fund or ETF, um, that's great. And then if you want to explore with a stock here and there, that's fine too. And keep in mind, I don't, I don't think um, it hurts to get help and, and, and I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm not rich enough for help. And that's not true. You know, most financial institutions will be glad to help you. I know, you know, not to sell Charles Schwab, but I know we would as well. The other thing I wanted to mention to you when you were talking about different ethnic groups, as you know, I work on um, financial literacy as a poverty prevention. And Stanford, which is, you know, in our backyard, has a center on poverty, and they issue a report of how people, you know, are more Americans getting out of poverty or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, you know, with earned income tax credits and so forth, there are fewer people in poverty than, say, you know, before. But one thing it does say is that those people who invest in equities are outperforming, are those who are... Um, Making more money, in a sense, than those who are not, and that's what separates that the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And it's it's disheartening to see. So it's you know changing the culture, you know, with your family or who you know other families who think the same. And we do, you know, financial institutions need to do a better job of reaching out.
1: Well, it's important work uh, that that you are doing, so I certainly appreciate that. My parents own stocks now. Because um, of you,
0: because <laughs> of you. Not,
1: no, not because of me, not because of me. I mean, you know, as they as they continued to work and, and do well, they had retirement funds and got, you know, more active in those, got a yes. financial planner to help That's them out. That's so great. Uh, so we're definitely in a different era. But yeah, Yeah.
0: yeah um, and, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit, the 401K. Is really forcing us, more of us, to participate and get involved with our finances. I mean, today, now, more than ever, we live in a world of doing it ourselves, right? Not only do we have to save for our retirement, we have to know how to invest. And so, for those of us who hadn't been as exposed, we're, you know, we're, we're having to kind of dig right in.
1: My thanks to Carrie Schwab Pomerantz. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple's podcast app, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. I'd also really appreciate it if you leave a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week, February, begins Black History Month, and I want to honor that with a conversation about social justice in America and beyond. Darren Walker is president of the Ford Foundation, one of the nation's largest charitable entities. His journey to that position and his travels around the world made for a great conversation. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or Fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.